Hello, everyone, and welcome back. I'm Anna Witty, the host of the Words with Witty podcast. And yes, if you're watching this, I did move the microphone closer to my mouth because I think it works better audibly. I hope for those who are listening to the podcast, it sounds better as well. And hey, thanks for extending some grace because we're all just learning here, right? I'm still kind of new to the podcasting scene. So hopefully this does make a huge difference. However, I started this podcast to chat with people who have inspiring stories. We'll talk about how they got started in their respective careers, what they've learned about life and work along the way, and some of their successes and failures. So this is a great episode. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoy episode three. Today's guest on the podcast is cafe co-owner and chef Greer Gilchrist. Greer co-owns two cafes here in Charleston, South Carolina. One is called The Harbinger and the other one is Harkin. And Greer, I don't have a favorite item on either one of your menus, but I do have to say that Sundays are my favorite days because those donuts at The Harbinger are unmatched and I love them. So thank you for bringing joy to my Sundays. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We will get started with kind of what did you study in school? Where did you go to school? And what were your dreams for yourself and your career um, when you were in college? Um, So in school, I studied English and art history. And I thought that I would be an English teacher. Um, I just mostly love to read and I wanted to teach. I thought that would be really exciting. So then after school, um, after I graduated, my first job was teaching English in Egypt. And I taught like, uh, I think second graders. Um, And I hated it so much. (laughs) I really hated teaching. I really don't like children anyways. Um, So it was not the job for me at all. I don't know why I ever thought that it would be. And then I actually went and I taught in Spain too which I liked a little bit more because they were a little bit older. Um, But it was pretty obvious that I was not, teaching was not going to be my thing. So why did you go to Spain and to Egypt? Why not teach here in America? Um, I had lived in Massachusetts my whole life and I wanted to go somewhere as far away and as different as I possibly could. And Egypt was definitely that. I wanted just to be immersed in something so, so, so foreign to me. So how were you initially interested in cooking and baking? Um, I've always loved cooking and baking. It was a big part of our growing up. We baked with my mom. We cooked with my mom. She made, you know, she's she's an amazing cook. She's always making us dinner, obviously. And I loved being with her and I loved doing it. I used to make cooking shows with my you know, my best friend. Um, I was just always curious about food, always reading about food, um, sort of always investigating food, asking people what they ate, just like a, a really intense curiosity about food. While you were in Egypt and in Spain, what kind of experiences did you have with food? And, and, and while you were there, is that kind of when you started thinking about working in the food industry? Well, I, all of my jobs have always been in the food industry. My first job when I was 14 was at an apple orchard and then there was a coffee shop and then a Lebanese restaurant. Um, So all of, and I could go on. I've had so many jobs in the food industry. So by the time I got to Egypt, I was not thinking about 
working in food because I thought I have this degree, I have to go and have this real job. And when I was there, I, you know, the hours that I wasn't teaching, I spent all of my time exploring the city and trying to understand all of their food. Um, they have such different food there and just trying to understand it. And I went over a lot of the kids' homes because I like the kids. I like the kids' parents. <laughs> and I'll go over their homes. Um, their, their family would cook for me. And um, it was just really exciting to see what other people eat and what they do with food and um, how it relates to them. So I didn't work in food in Egypt. Um, but I immersed myself as much as I could in what everyone was eating. So Spain, I feel like a lot of people kind of know and understand the culture to an extent food wise, but Egypt, I don't even know anything. So what, what is the food experience in Egypt and what's popular? Um, well, I think you have your, your traditional idea of, I guess, Middle Eastern food. Um, so all of the different mezes and, um, just sort of that really fresh and herbaceous <laughs> um, flavor profile. But then um, they're like kind of weird. Like um, one of my favorite things ever um, was this thing, I think I'm remembering it correctly, called fitir. I, I should look that up before I talk about it more, but it was like, almost this giant crepe filled with, I think, condensed milk. Um, okay. I want to make sure that that's actually it before I sound really stupid. Is it like a dessert or is yes, it? Yes. Okay. So it can be sweet or it can be savory. And um, we they would have like fritier cafes. So you would go there and they would, it's just like giant, I don't know, bread type thing. I had never heard of it. I've never seen anything like it since then. And I will never forget it. It was one of those, um, food moments where I ate it and I was just so astounded at how delicious it was like I just remember that first bite and just being blown away and then the same with this dessert called and I'm not going to say it right but zalabia and it's like these little fried dough balls drenched in honey or powdered sugar or sometimes even cocoa powder and it just blew my mind when I had those and I've never um, had anything like that before um, and then obviously their falafel is different, but just like fresh falafel and fresh pita, like nice and hot for breakfast was so delicious and so simple. Like it didn't have anything else in it. It was just the falafel and the pita. Um, and I liked the simplicity of it. So oh, that delicious. sounds amazing. So delicious. And so you spent time in Egypt, you spent time teaching in Spain. What were your next steps career-wise once you were done with those two things? Um, then I moved back, uh, I moved to Boston actually, and I didn't really know what to do. I moved to Boston for a boy. My boyfriend lived there at the time and I wanted to be near him. And uh, I just got a job at this, like just really wonderful local um, cafe, bakery, deli. And I just worked there for about a year trying to figure things out. Um, and then again was like, oh, I should, you know, get a real job. And so I got a job um, with this marketing company and 
only lasted for three months and hated it and was so depressed. Um, and then the boy and I broke up and then I uh, just set off for Central America and backpacked through there for about half a year, um, just eating <laughs> and uh, spending all of my money. <laughs> wow. that is. So what did you learn while you were there? What, what, what made you want to go over there and do that? To Central America, um, I wanted to, I was just really still antsy and wanted to explore and I just really wanted to be uncomfortable and I wanted to understand the world. I wanted to understand people that weren't like me. Um, I wanted to speak Spanish. I wanted to eat different food. Um, I just wanted an immersion in anything that was different. Uh, so that's, and I had no money. Uh, so I was like, well, I, you know, I can't go back to Europe, but I could probably go through Central America and um, just ate a lot. And again, I loved their emphasis on it. Their food is not all of their food is simple, but I love the simplicity of a lot of their food. Like they don't need to hide their flavors in a thousand different things because they're just good on their own. Um, you know, they can make just rice and beans so, so, so delicious. You don't need to douse it in anything. And I loved that. How does your cooking now at the Harbinger and Harkin, how has it influenced maybe by some of your experiences in Europe and Central America? I don't know. I think I wouldn't say any of our recipes were pulled from things that I ate uh, like that I literally ate, but I think it was understanding my relationship to food and other people's relationship to food and then understanding how I feel when I eat, where I want to get the food from, um, what flavors I want to highlight, what flavors I think go well together. I do have a penchant for a lot of Middle Eastern flavors, not just because of Egypt, but my job in college was at this really wonderful family-run Lebanese restaurant. And he was really inspirational to me. I mean, the, the guy, the father that owned it, it would just be me and him for like hours <laughs> talking about Lebanon. And he used to help me practice Arabic when he found out I was going to Egypt. Um, and he, you know, he, that was like the first time that I really started thinking about all of the different ways that you can cook and all of the I remember one time he made his wife was there and she put cinnamon and chicken and like rolled it up and almost like a tortilla and it was so delicious and it was the first time that I thought about putting cinnamon with something like chicken and so he maybe that's where I could trace it to thinking really differently about food what was your first position or your first job of you actually cooking or baking something in a restaurant? And, and I guess let's start with when did you decide that that's what you wanted to do? Well, I didn't really decide it. It was sort of like, I, there was nothing else I was ever going to be able to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> I have, you know, like I said, I spent my career thus far in food and everything else I tried I didn't like <laughs> and the only thing that I really ever loved was food and making it and eating it and talking about it and exploring it and 
it just seemed like that was going to be my path. And luckily I met Cameron who, you know, is the key to everything for me. She's like, you know, she was just the match that I needed. <laughs> so Cameron co-owns the Harkin or the Harbinger and Harkin with you. When did you first meet Cameron? We met in DC at my brother's cafe, uh, Blind Dog Cafe, and we just became friends. I mean, it was a really, really tiny cafe. It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, it was just a, it was a pop-up in a bar. This was when pop-ups were a really big thing in cities. And um, we just became friends and would spend hours together, <laughs> you know, at work. And we just got really close. What did Cameron do at the cafe? What was her role? She was just like me. We were just baristas, but we made all of the sandwiches and the salads. We did everything. Um, yeah, I mean, we both met at that time in your 20s where you're like, what are we doing? She had also been living abroad and she also was like, I don't know what I want to do. And, you know, you're just sort of floundering. <laughs> um, I'm, you know, I'm sure that was a big part of our friendship was being like, what are we doing? We're, we were both trying so many different things. She was helping two friends start businesses. And um, I was trying to develop my own um, wholesale bakery. So, you know, I, I feel like people get really stressed in their twenties being like, I have to have all the answers, but I also think it's a really wonderful time for being really confused. And it's a great time for exploration and, you know, seeing who you are and what you can do. What about this wholesale bakery? I didn't know about this. So what that was in my brother's cafe, which I helped him open. My brother and I made the menu and I did all the baking for it. Okay. And the bacons were so popular that we created the Black Dog Bakery. And then we hold, so we made the bakers in the bakery, but then we moved to a commercial kitchen. And then I baked for different cafes in the area, um, for Whole Foods different um, grocery stores and we would make um, cookies. <laughs> what made it so popular? What made your pastries and your baked goods so popular in DC? They're really delicious. <laughs> it was a really delicious chocolate chip cookie. It's the same one. Um, and we had four cookies and they were just really yummy and our scones were really good and everything was just a little bit different too. And I think that people really liked that. So I read where the story goes, Cameron pitched the idea of you guys moving down to Charleston and starting cafes or starting a cafe. How did that initially, how did that conversation initially go between the two of you? Uh, well, it was a rainy day and we were gonna meet at our favorite coffee shop just to catch up because she'd been in New York for the weekend. And she just came in and she sat down and she said, um, I saw this beautiful cafe in New York City, and I think we can do something like that, but better. And I think that you and I should open up a cafe. And I said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and that's truly what started it. So why Charleston specifically? Cameron's family is from here. Her okay. dad lives out on Edisto, um, and her sister lives here. Um, so her family is here. Her brother did live here. He just moved. I'm sure he'll move back. Was this your, had you ever been to Charleston before? No, I hadn't. And once we started to really get serious about it, um, we flew down just for a weekend in February. And I mean, I was already 
ready to do it. But yeah, we visited for a weekend and she just showed me around because she also went to CFC. So okay, she okay. Yeah. What year was it when that happened? That was 2016. Yeah, that was 2016 because then in May I moved down here and then okay. Cameron moved in August. What was the process? How did you start opening up your first cafe in Charleston, South Carolina? Well, first we found the spot. So Kim found the spot. Um, and then we, in, um, Cameron is really great at doing the build out. I don't even know how she figured out how to do that. I mean, by the time we opened Harkin, obviously she was better at it, but I, I thought she was already really good at it for Harbinger. So I just followed her lead mm -hmm. and she um, built our team of, we have a, a contractor we loved and built it and opened it. <laughs> and we just relied, I guess, on what we thought we knew and just tried our best. And where, <laughs> so the Harbinger was the first location. And how did you, how did you decide that on King Street was where you wanted to be? And how did she find that specific spot? Well, we didn't want to go somewhere that we weren't needed. And it seemed like this area didn't have anything. Um, it seemed like it was a developing area uh, and a neighborhood, which is what we wanted to be in because we wanted, we still want the Harbinger to be a community space. Um, so, I mean, it has turned into being the exact perfect location that we thought it would be. Yeah. No, I think it's so cute. And then you get that little outdoor space as well, where people can go sit outside and it's a great size as well. And I know you as the chef and the baker in, in both locations, uh, what was the menu process when you're opening up a new cafe? Where do you start? Um, well, we knew for sure that we wanted to have, you know, the bakery, but then we also knew that we wanted to have salads and that was sort of how I always cooked and how I always ate was I would always make all these different salads um, and that would be my dinner would be like a plate of three four or five different salads and so and I love that when you go to a deli you can get all the different deli salads or in New York how they have all those delis with all the salads and you can just help yourself um it's like kind of a buffet right. <laughs> and so we wanted to have that but with really delicious salads and then we just thought a lot about what we wanted in a cafe and then we listened a lot to what the community wanted so how did how were you able to listen to the community what did you put out information online to see what they wanted specifically or how did you know what they wanted well once we opened I mean people are pretty vocal right. <laughs> about what they want or what they don't want um and luckily for us we are in a neighborhood and we have a lot of regulars and we do we listen to what everyone says um and Cam and I are usually present so we're very available for anyone to talk to us about what they might want or need and and our staff also tells us what they hear so um yeah that's that's sort of how we knew just from being here and watching and listening and when did you first open the Harbinger? In June of 2017. Okay. And what was the biggest struggle or the biggest hurdle you had to overcome when you first opened the doors to the Harbinger? Yeah, I mean, there are of course a lot of challenges all the time, but you know, nothing that I 
nothing that we didn't expect. Um, you know, we knew we'd be working incessantly for a long time to, to make it a special place. We knew things would break and we would have to figure everything out. We knew we'd have to figure out how to be managers and leaders. Um, none of those things are easy. We knew that we'd have to, um, you know, have a strong business partner relationship, not just be friends anymore. And so none of those things are easy, but I don't think any of them we were like, oh my God, we didn't think this would happen. I mean, I guess I would say now the biggest thing would have been the pandemic. Um, right we were definitely not prepared for that but otherwise you know we didn't go into it blind we knew there would be a lot of really really hard things and one of the things that i'm always curious about when it comes to cafes and, the, and restaurants in general there's so many details and ingredients that go into especially what you make so how did you price out the menu how did you decide how much everything should cost uh well it's just a formula you just write up your recipe and then, you know, you just translate it to the, the cost of goods. Oh, so it's like an industry standard thing that that's what you, you do. Yeah. Okay. I cool. mean, I can't imagine really there are too many different ways to do it. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, yeah, but I guess then there's always, you know, like you said, things break and you have to replace it, especially with the Harbinger and Harkin. You have so many decorations because you've done such a great job creating a really welcoming space. So just pricing out everything and making sure that um, that it was it went smoothly. But it sounds like having experience in D.C. really helped you be successful here in Charleston. Yeah. Um, and then we just, you know, I mean, yeah, we spend a lot of time and money on our fixtures and on the ambiance. And I think, you know, you don't make money off of that at all, but it makes the experience nicer. And for four years and four years after you opened the Harbinger, the pandemic happened and Harkin was open at the time as well. How did you adjust with both your cafes when the world essentially shut down? Um, well, we also shut down for a while when the whole city shut down. Um, and then we, again, just tried our hardest when we were able to reopen, we reopened and everything was just to go. Um, and we tried our, you know, our best to you know, make everything still feel really special. And we tried to be there for our community. And as the restrictions were limited, we, I mean, we were removed. We, you know, we're also really mindful of what was safe for our staff. Um, and so it was a slow, depressing process. <laughs> um, last summer was hard for everybody, but um, we are still here, so. Right. And the Harbinger clearly had success. So you opened Harkin. When did you, when did you open Harkin? We opened Harkin in October of 2019. Okay. So a little over two and a half years after the Harbinger. No, sure. Yeah. Yep. So why did yep. you open a second, a second cafe? Uh, we always knew that we wanted another bakery. And um, when we were approached about this one, it was just so it had such potential to be so beautiful 
time. It was in a different part of town, which was really great. And again, we felt like it was needed. There are a lot of offices and people who live down there who didn't really have this opportunity. And it could be something fun and different for all of the tourists. So you mentioned someone approached you. Who approached you? The landlords. Okay. So someone wanted you to move another cafe into the spot. Was it was it a pre- pretty easy decision? Um, yeah, because yeah, the space was just so old and, and we had, you know, Cameron has such a beautiful vision for it. Yeah. And I want to go back to the menu and just the creative process that you have to putting together a menu. Um, what's your creative process when it, when it comes to putting together new items or coming up with new recipes? I don't know. It's, um, it just really does come, uh, pretty naturally to me because it is something that I'm always thinking about reading, eating, doing, um so sometimes if i need to like workshop a dessert or something it is helpful for me i find a lot of inspiration going on runs or walks it helps me like think through things um but i do if i so when i need to make the new menu for the month i just sort of sit down um, with my notebook and you know just think about maybe things that i've eaten or um Maybe I read about something and I just try to transform it into something delicious <laughs> um, for one of the bakeries. How long does it take you? Um, it does not take me that long uh, to write a recipe that is successful, <laughs> but right. sometimes um, some recipes take me a really long time to figure out, like sometimes like months. And then sometimes I just give up on recipes and just move on. What's been your favorite recipe to put together for either one of the cafes? Maybe the biscuits at Harkin. I love those biscuits so much. They're delicious. Can you describe what it took to make those and put that recipe together? Yeah, well, I'm really bad at making biscuits. Um, and we have been trying to have biscuits even at the Harbinger for a long time. And I'm not, I just, I'm, I just can't do it. And during the pandemic, I made so many biscuits and I ate biscuits every single day. And they just weren't great. And then I finally just decided to stop making biscuits how, you know, people think they're supposed to be made. And I just made them in my own way, how I like to make things. And now I really love our biscuits (laughs) and they're different. They're like a little bit dense and they have ricotta in them and they're a little bit sweet and salty. And I love them. What's the biggest difference in the menus between both of the cafes? Um, Well, the most the glaringly obvious one is that at Harkin we do have meat. We offer turkey and bacon, um, and at the Harbinger we don't. But otherwise, they're still mostly plant-based. Um, a lot of gluten-free options. Um, so the differences are just that they're different <laughs> recipes. Like we still have cookies, but they're different. Um, it's like there were always these cafes in Egypt that were called same, same, but different. <laughs> and so they would be Literally. like kind of same, but a little bit different. And that's what I always think of. Like they're same, same, but different. <laughs> so you're just kind of spreading the wealth of all of your favorite menu items throughout both the cafes, essentially. 
Yeah, basically. So we don't have the same things. We have a few of the same things. Like we have the best friend cookie at both places. Um, but otherwise the desserts are all different there. So. So Harkin and the Harbinger are really unique names. I personally never heard of either one of them before I heard about your cafes. How did you come up with the names of both your cafes? Um, so the word the Harbinger means something to come and it can be something good or bad. And we felt that we were going to be harbingers to this neighborhood. We wanted to do good by the community. We wanted to invest ourselves in the community, support the local community, um, and then you know also provide a special space, um, exciting food, uh, get back to the local economy. So we felt like we were a harbinger of something good to come. And then for Harkin, since we're in the French Quarter and it is this really old building, we felt like we were hearkening back to a different time. Um, we were, the design is a little bit more inspired with older French, even like older schoolhouse themes for Cameron. So that's like hearkening back. Um, and we wanted it to be, you know, less of a modern cafe and more, you know, come in and sit and, and talk to your friends and, you know, eat a, a unique pastry. Yeah. <laughs> so we felt like we were hearkening back to something different. Well, I definitely want to talk about the aesthetics of both the cafes because they're a huge hit here in Charleston. But before we get there, you worked in cafes in a, a cafe in DC. You have worked in a cafe here in Charleston. What's the biggest difference between those two different cities? Oh, well, DC is a giant, vibrant, bustling, exciting city uh, with so much to offer. I mean, it's diverse. Uh, I mean, DC is so amazing. Um, you have all the Smithsonian's, there are so many museums, there are so many interesting people that come to give lectures. Um, there's so many different, there's so many different styles of food. Mm -hmm. um, it's exciting. You just feel like really alive and, and like you're a part of um, something really different. Um, Charleston is very calm yeah. <laughs> and sleepy. Um, uh, very laid back, much more, you know, the beach vibe. So I would say that I think of Charleston more like almost like a vacation land. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a very different mentality here. It's very calm. It's very slow. And in DC, if you don't have like five jobs and you're not looking for a sixth one, then you're an underachiever. Right. <laughs> so they're very different in that sense. What about the food scenes? Are they similar? Are they different? What's been the biggest difference between the two? Um, well, Charleston is obviously very interested in coastal and Southern food. Some of the more fine dining restaurants are similar to the ones in DC, that style, uh, you know, fine dining. Um, but then DC just has more diverse food just because they have a lot more different people that live there. Right, right. And I read where you said uh, your food scene or how you create your menu. You don't try and necessarily put a Southern spin on it. You keep it unique to yourself. How do you make yourself stand out in such a fantastic food scene here in Charleston? Uh, well, because I think we're not 
trying to be anything but what we are. So um, we are, what we eat is, what we serve here is what Cameron and I always want to eat. And we're not special. So I would assume if that's what we want, that's probably what most people want. Right. But we'll just actually make it for you. Like a lot of people actually do love veggies. Um, they just don't always know how to make them or they don't know how to make them taste good, but they want to eat them. So we've just done that work for you. So you just have to come in and order it. <laughs> right. And I was going to ask you about, you answered this question because a lot of people say, you know, their restaurants or their cafes really tell a story. And you just told us about the story bet between the Harbinger and Harkin. Uh, but when it came to aesthetically creating a space, how did you come up with the idea of putting in certain furnitures or making both spaces look a certain way? Well, that's all Cameron. Okay. Cameron has the vision. Um, but for as much as I can speak for her, she wanted um, both places obviously to feel really special, but it's like you're you're in a safe, cozy environment where you feel almost like you're at home and you want to stay there and you want to be there. And both of us agree with you want to we want you to see all of the attention to detail that we have paid to it. We want you to know um, how special everything is. It's all hand selected um, and every, everything does have a story. I mean, both of us could walk you through both bakeries and tell you where we found things. I mean, Cameron found them. I was just always along for the ride. Um, so it's just supposed to make you feel like you're at home and happy. <laughs> and I think where you are with the Harbinger and the Harkin such a, a good location because a lot of the tourists walk through that area. But with the Harbinger being in that north central Wagner Terrace neighborhood and with the Charleston Technology Center building literally less than a mile up your street, I think you've put yourself in a really cool position where a lot of people are going to be coming to you. I know a lot of people already do um, for coffee or for, you know, business meetings or whatever. So I think it's cool that you potentially could see a lot of growth in that specific location. Um, but on, I go on Instagram. I don't know about you. When I'm traveling somewhere new or even being here in Charleston, I use Instagram as my tool to find new restaurants and find new places that I want to eat. And uh, I know a lot of local influencers like Julie Engel, who has literally over a million Instagram followers, always shares Harkin and, and she shares the Harbinger as well. How have you seen the effects of some of these local influencers affect your business? Um, I don't know. I don't do our social media. Uh, so I truly don't, I can't. You don't even pay, you don't even like pay attention to the followers or. No, what? I look at our stories. Um, mm -hmm. cause I like to see what we repost, but no, I, I don't do that. So okay. I don't know. <laughs> That's all cam. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, cool. Okay. So it's really, you know, you're really just in the kitchen cooking and, and baking and really putting together a product. She's really the business side of things for you guys. Uh, well, just the social media. Right. Um, you know, currently, um, and we do have clear roles. Well, and I was going to say too, with the Harbinger, I, I looked online, you have over 10,000 followers. And like you said, you don't really pay attention to the numbers of social media, but for a cafe, that's a lot of followers on Instagram. So I just, I think it's really interesting to see potentially maybe how 
that's affected uh, your business in a positive way for both of your locations. Um, because I, I know, I, I know both what you say. I would assume that it has. Oh, I just for sure. Don't know. <laughs> and it's just a great place to be. I mean, like you said, the aesthetic of the place is both of the places are so beautiful that most people with Instagram being so popular, when they go get a cup of coffee and they're like, all right, what's going to be the prettiest background when I take a picture for my Instagram and yeah. Harbinger or Harkin are the spots to be. Yeah. People do love to post. I do. I do watch our stories. So I see what people like to take photos of. <laughs> right. Right. So what, what about the advertising for your business? Um, has that changed at all since your experience and maybe even start back from your cafe experience in Washington, DC, how has advertising changed, uh, for opening a, a cafe from when you started to now here in 2021? I don't know. I don't, um, still not your lane. Well, I can't, I, I wouldn't say that we've ever advertised. Okay. Um, we just, I mean, we've never put out an ad or, you know, done anything like that. Uh, we just, you know, have opened up and. Welcome to people in. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, advertising is not really something that we have ever done, which is why I'm sure, you know, I know the powers of social media. So of course that's helpful. Right. Um, Huh, that's really cool. That's really so. You really didn't have a plan when you opened Harbinger, the Harbinger, to advertise and get people coming in. It was really just word of mouth when you first started. Yeah, and Charleston's a small enough city too that we, you know, had a lot of hope for that. But we we did um, spend a lot of time and money on our beautiful cups because we wanted those to to be a big part of the marketing so that you would. You know, if you if you bought a cup and a to-go cup, then you would walk around town and people would see it, and that so that's sort of the extent of our advertising. So, why the cup specifically? Did you want that to be a big part? Um, because that's what people take to go all the time, coffee. So, you're, and you're always carrying your coffee cup around. So, how did that start? Who, where did you start with um, reaching out to someone to make that? And what's the creative process behind putting together those cups? Well, we worked with our designers um, and then, you know, just sent them off to the manufacturer. But I mean, that that took a while too. That was a big part of um, preparing the Harbinger and what it was going to be. But we, we, we hired designers to help us. We didn't do that on our own. Was it before you opened that you created those cups? Okay. It was yeah. part of the process. Okay. And what is next for your food career? You've opened two cafes in the span of five, he five years here in Charleston. Uh, what do you see for yourself next? Um, uh, continuing to make um, the Harbinger and Harkin special places for the Charleston community. Um, continuing to make them positive and exciting places for people to work. Mm -hmm. um, and continuing to, you know, be a force for good in both of our communities. I mean, those are the most important things. So as long as we can uphold a high standard of quality, um, that's, that's what I'm looking to do for the future. And I know when a lot of people come to Charleston, they talk about the food scene and I mean, I've lived here for over a year now and I definitely haven't tried every single restaurant yet. And so uh, for you being in the food industry here, what's your favorite part about living in Charleston, experiencing the food scene? 
Um, my favorite part of it. Yes. Eating. Yeah. <laughs> eating and drinking. Um, that's do you have it. a fa- do you have a favorite like spot or a favorite restaurant to try? Um. Yeah, I have a few that are just um, around actually in this neighborhood where I live. Last night we went to Baker and Brewer and I love their, they have a whiskey lemonade that I really love and they make the most delicious blue cheese dressing. Um, And then I love um, Edmund's Oast. I love their um, frozen Paloma. I love the game changer at home team. <laughs> so you're a cocktail gal. Uh, yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Would um, you ever expand to cocktails or alcoholic no. beverages? No. No. Okay. No. Cool. no, but I like to drink them. <laughs> right. No, for sure. I hear you. And there's always new spots opening up as well. Like at Edmund's mm-hmm. Oast, they're putting the co-op in there. I definitely went there and tried their rosé, so... Oh, yep. I meant the restaurant. Um, I haven't actually been to Edmunds as Brewery. Oh, okay. Oh, the place on meeting, right? Is that meeting? Yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. Okay. Um, but I'm sure I would like both of them. Where can people find you on social media or just on uh, in general? The Harbinger Cafe. Okay. I think those, yeah, if you just look at either of those, you will find us. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, Greer, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the show. It was a pleasure to hear about your experience opening these cafes in Charleston and best of luck in the future. Yeah, thank you. I hope I was informative enough. No, yeah, that was great. Thank you so much.